You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Well, that's great. You know, I, I mentioned last night on the panel, you know, f- 50 years ago, there wasn't an event like this anywhere in the world. And now, and I'll show you some examples of things that have happened in other parts of the world, as well as conferences like this and, and other ones. So there have been amazing developments in the last 50 years. And, and the interest of worship that we've seen grow in our own country, most of you are from the U.S., I assume, uh, in this country at least, uh, we find that interest from all over the place, all over the world, and uh, uh, through through communication, modern technology, and whatnot, there, there are opportunities to be familiarized with some of those other expressions and, uh, and, and familiarize ourselves with them and see how God is working in other places as well. You know, so it's not a, like you say, we tend to all live in a pretty narrow world and, and not, not recognize all the riches that are going on out there. Um, I've got some resources you can pick up afterwards if you'd like. This was... Uh, this, uh, these are people on sort of networks I, I uh, travel in with uh, people concerned with global worship and involved in uh, some of those networks, and I'll mention some of them in the presentation. This, uh, this is an excerpt from Worship Leader magazine uh, several years ago, and it's a collection of four or five articles that, that deal with, uh, it's called We Being Many or One, a fresh look at global a global understanding of worship. So there are these here, they're on the DT table out there as well. Maybe some of you have already gotten it. And uh, this is sort of a trade magazine for, for uh, missionaries put out by the U.S. Center for World Mission, Mission Frontiers. And this is a recent uh, issue, actually this, the current issue uh, that is full of articles on this issue of global worship as well, worship and mission for the global church and the term ethnodoxology, which may be new to to uh, some of you, but that'll be, um, these will be here too, and they're free for the taking if you're interested. Uh, this is a little book, it was mentioned last night, Proclamation of Praise, uh, Hebrews 2.12 and the Christology of Worship, last D&T, this was given out to everybody free, uh, they're not free this time, but they're, they're, they're um, just $8, about half off if anybody's interested uh, in, that, in that study. Um, but anyway, if you look at your outline, let me mention a couple things to save us time while we're waiting for the thing, and then I'm going to show you some some video clips uh, and various things. Uh, what we've seen in the world of missions, and this is what this initial uh, movie clip I'm going to show you when we get to that point, will, will demonstrate that that missions 100 years ago or so uh, were carried on by by very well-meaning, obviously committed people. You know, when they got on the boat. You know, they didn't email people when they got there to say we made it or Skype with them or whatnot. Often it was goodbye forever, or at least for a very, very long time. So no question about the commitment. Uh, sometimes they went with an understanding of the gospel and uh, missions work uh, that they would kind of bring their cultural baggage with them, their hymn books, uh, their way of doing things, and uh, some ways uh, force that on people, give people the idea that the, when you receive the gospel, this is how you respond to it, you know, with our hymns and whatnot, whether they're translated or redone or whatnot. Um, so there's been an amazing and, and really refreshing development in missions in, I'd say, the last 30 years that's kind of been spearheaded by Wycliffe Bible translators and some others, uh, where, the, where there's much more of, 
an interest in contextualization, as the first note on your outline says. That is, we need to go in, we need to listen to learn, we need to put the Bible, of course, Wycliffe's known for that, putting the Bible in the language uh, of the people. And I'm going to unplug this so it's not distracting. Put the language in the people, but also in the way we communicate, whether it's an oral culture or written culture, the way we uh, do arts, the way we do worship, the way we do music. We need to be learning from listening to these people because the arts, uh, sometimes we, in our culture, sometimes we think of music and the arts as kind of a, uh, you know, a, not you folks, I'm preaching in the choir here, but sort of a, a side activity or something we do in our leisure time or whatnot. When in reality, uh, the arts speak deeply of a people and their longings and their feelings and, and what's important to them in life often finds expressions in the, in the arts of a particular culture. And so there's much more of a, a, a sensitivity to that in modern missions and sending people in with some pretty specialized training, as we'll see in a little bit, pretty specialized training going in and uh, listening, taking a long time to listen and to learn uh, from these people, the people group, and then coming alongside them, not, and again, not foisting their uh, particular, uh, the missionary's particular understanding of what they're used to or their musical or artistic styles or whatnot, but listening to the people and helping them to develop in their context uh, indigenous expressions that, that value, that validate uh, their particular ways of doing things, of expressing themselves in their music and their other arts and uh, giving them a way to think through that. How might we apply those things in, now in a Christian context, now that the gospel has come uh, to you and you've responded to that? Um, still trying to open that up. Let me give you an example. This is a friend of mine uh, in, who heads up a worship training ministry in the Philippines called Windsong. They're Filipinos. And they do worship seminars and worship concerts and whatnot uh, in the Philippine context. And um, he wrote this in one email a couple years ago. I think it's just a really, really interesting example of, of uh, seeking to contextualize, seeking to value local artistic expressions and whatnot. At the end of this month, Lynn and I, it's his wife with JL, their son, have scheduled a trip to the Sierra Madre Mountains to visit a tribal group called the Bogolot. They are former headhunters who have turned to Jesus Christ and have vibrant and growing churches in every village. They are so well-grounded in the faith that this year they are planning to send five missionary families to another completely different tribal group in the south of the Philippines. It will be a cross-cultural missionary outreach. Sad, though, that when we visited them last July 2010, this was, their church was set up like an urban church. They have full bands, keyboard, electric guitar, bass, guitar, drums for praise and worship. And to think this church was high up and in the middle of the forest. As we were talking with the worship team members, we asked them how they got to learn how to play those instruments. They said they didn't really know if they were doing it right. They just play it the way they think it was supposed to be played. In other words, that's how you do Christian worship. You bring in the band and set them up and whatnot. So they were requesting a workshop. But we went further with our questions and asked them if they had their own indigenous instruments and songs. They said they have, and we asked again if they've ever considered using them in their worship. And they said, is that possible? We said it's very possible. And they asked how to do it. 
Amazing that the young ones in that tribal group don't really know how to play those instruments and sing their songs. So when we go up on January 23rd, we'll be talking with the tribal and church elders in every village to allow us to organize a worship seminar workshop in the middle of this year. It will be a two-fold approach. We will first instruct, train them in the use of their electronic instruments. Okay, so they're not rejecting that. They're not kicking that out. They're going to teach them to do that better as well as teach them the biblical principles of worship. And simultaneously, we will be documenting their indigenous instruments, songs, and dances, maybe even art forms, so we can analyze them and determine which ones can be used for worship. After this trip, we will try to learn their music, songs, and dances so we can find a way to integrate them into their existing worship. Then we will go back, this is really interesting, then we will go back to their elders and present to them our ideas, suggestions, and see what they have to comment. So again, they're not going around the elders. They're not imposing their forms or their ideas or whatnot. They're going to work through the established structures of the church, but offer what they can in terms of ideas and the basis of their own experience and background and analysis and whatnot of what might work. If everything is a go, we'll plan for a second trip to do a songwriting workshop to help them create their own worship songs using their heart language and heart music. So what Wycliffe found as they started doing this and sending specialists, as we'll see, uh, to, to first of all listen and to study and to value and to validate their own petition, uh, particular artistic expression, which is a change from our sort of a colonial mindset where we have all the answers you know, they, pe- people used to talk about Africa as the dark continent. You know, there's probably, uh, in terms of proportion, there's probably four or five times as many believers in Africa now than in the U.S. So which is the dark continent now is the question. And yet at that time, you know, we need to go in, we need to help them, we need to give them not only uh, the gospel, but these various forms and whatnots. And what they learned, what Wycliffe learned by experience was when they did this kind of listening and validating and uh, help them think, people think through uh, how they might incorporate their own artistic expressions, what they found was that the churches grew rapidly. When they took the translated scriptures that Wycliffe had worked on and let that be expressed, as we're doing here at Doxology and Theology, letting that biblical truth be expressed in ways that are meaningful and really spoke to the hearts of those people. They found much faster growth uh, in their churches than when they didn't, because it was, it was speaking in a way that was meaningful and, and, and important to them. So, that's where we are. Now, by way of introduction, after uh, having said all that, uh, I want to show you this clip from, this is a 1951 movie with Humphrey Bogart and uh, Catherine Hepburn called The African Queen. And it starts off with a really interesting missionary scene. Observe what's going on, some of the things I already described in this missionary context. Uh, observations. What was wrong? Very well-meaning, committed people, okay? Nothing against that. But what, what are some of the problems there that you observe? Nobody knew what they were singing. Okay. In terms of what? Language or, or melody. Or melody. <laughs> exactly. Okay, it was a totally foreign musical system. It was c- c- cacophony. It meant nothing to them. It wasn't even their own language. Okay, anything else come to mind there? Just no contextual 
Okay. Where they're at. Um, okay. What kind of people. What right. They like, what they don't like. Right. What floats their boat? What speaks what to their heart? Yeah. yeah. That was, no pun intended. What floats their boat? <laughs> but <laughs> yes. Instrumentation too. I mean, they're yeah. This keyboard there and yeah. pop the organ. Exactly. Thank you for noticing that contract. Humphrey Bogarts, he's kind of the bad guy. You know, he's just over there to make money. He's a scoundrel, basically, hard drinking, smoking, everything else. But he's listening to the local music. Missionaries have ignored it. He's, and he's speaking the language. You notice? He knows the language. They're foisting English on the people. So, just an interesting uh, imported musical style, including the instrument. And the contrast of uh, the Humphrey Bogart people, person, uh, figure, who's kind of figured out things that the well-meaning missionaries have not. So very, very interesting. And um, this is a long quote from John Piper, but I think it's, but it's really germane uh, to this discussion. And uh, one of the issues we have with uh, debates and uh, conflicts about worship even is the surprising fact when we go to the New Testament there is very, very little in terms of specific instructions for what our worship services should look like. That leaves room for an incredible amount of diversity in our own context as well as around the world. So I think it's a positive thing. God is honored by um, cultural variety and creativity and whatnot. And yet we need to be careful about foisting, again, as we see these missionaries doing, foisting their way, thinking that, well, that's the way you worship God or that's the way you honor God or whatnot when the New Testament doesn't spell it out. And this Piper quote is long, but I think it's so germane and really devastating in one way. He says, in the New Testament, all the focus is on the reality of the glory of Christ, not the shadow and copy of religious objects and forms. It is stunning how indifferent the New Testament is to such things, things that form. This is an amazing statement, and it's true. There's no authorization in the New Testament for worship buildings, or worship dress, or worship times, or worship music, or worship liturgy, or worship size, or 35-minute sermons, or Advent poems, or choirs, or instruments, or candles. Almost every worship tradition we have is culturally shaped rather than biblically commanded. That's an amazing statement. It doesn't mean, I hasten to add, that our worship traditions are wrong. We've got to do something. But we can't say we do it exactly the way we do. And I'll show you some examples later on of, of how we do specific practices that may vary from church to church because the Bible itself doesn't say you must do it exactly this way. So it leaves a lot of open. There's still... There, there's still biblical framework. I'll show you something about that later. There's biblical con concept. There's biblical principles that need to guide us. But there's an incredible amount of room for diversity of expression, and that's what we find around the world. You know, the worship at this conference uh, isn't like one that might be, I don't know, at a PCA conference or uh, certainly in Argentina or Japan or whatnot. And that's okay. Um, and again, we need to be very careful about saying that we've arrived at the one best God-honoring way to do things when the Bible itself doesn't. And, and a lot of our worship problems stem from that, of thinking that we've figured it out. Uh, and not only is it right for us in our context, you've got to figure out something to do. But when we say, you need to do it that way as well. And we need to be very, very careful about that when the New Testament doesn't specifically address those things. So that's just a, a fascinating perspective, I think.
And the point is, uh, a very important point in this consideration is that music, sometimes we talk about music being a universal language. Music, the concept, the practice of music is universal in almost every culture. But to say it's a universal language is going too far because um, that's why we need to be careful. Uh, and we see this in generational conflicts in our own churches, don't we? What uh, speaks to uh, many of your, most of your generation uh, may speak in a different way to the older folks and, so, and vice versa. And so what helps you worship God may, uh, may distract them and what they think brings them to God may be distracting for you or whatnot. So again, but we need to realize and acknowledge that music is not a universal language. And here's a very vivid illustration of this. The Canela people are a tribal group in Brazil uh, that's come to Christ in recent years, and they wrote this song for worship. And, and listen to it and see what, what kind of, what you think this song might be about. Enough beautiful stuff. What kind of what kind of mood does that give you? What do you think it might be about? Okay, that's that's being diplomatic. <laughs> it's pretty wrenching, you know. We might think of it in a horror movie or something like that. The text for the song is "God's Word Makes Me Happy." <laughs> to them, this is happy music. And such a vivid illustration that music's not a universal language. It's, it speaks in different ways to different people that, that's built into their culture somehow. And if we don't understand that, we're going to say, well, you don't want to use that in Christian worship or whatnot. And yet to them, that's a happy song. That's happy. So this area of, yes, please. I'm from Brazil. Uh-huh. I speak Portuguese, and that's not Portuguese. That's a no, it's a tribal. Yeah, yeah it's a tribal language, yeah. Right. Yeah, it would be different than, than what the Portuguese community would be singing, too. Right. Okay, good. Glad you're here. You came a long way. Yeah. So we get, come back to, on the outline, this issue of contextualization. We've already talked about it. Uh, but I just want to point out uh, the important fact that the gospel message, as it says here in this definition, is abiding and universal. So there's an unchanging message, but which can be expressed and responded to in worship in an infinite variety of different ways. Okay? So there are non-negotiables, the truth of the gospel that doesn't change, but how we dress it up, like we saw in the Philippine example, they said, oh, can we use this stuff in our worship? They never thought about it before. Unchanging message, but the silence of the New Testament on the particulars gives, I think, a lot of freedom and leeway for diverse expressions of that unchanging truth, okay? So we don't desert the unchanging truth by any means, but we recognize that there are different legitimate ways to express that. So that's been seen, as you see in your outline, in terms of language, as I mentioned, in Bible translation, learning, missionaries learning the language, how you communicate, how you preach in different kinds of cultural settings, 
certainly relates to the music and arts and what you use and to worship. This is the statement that I referred to, the, the president of Wycliffe, that when the translators got the new believers to sing the newly translated scripture using their own melodies and music styles, churches grew rapidly. When that did not happen, churches grew slowly because it reached into their heart. It spoke to them in a way. Uh, and you'll see this in an African context when, when they're singing one of these Western hymns like we saw in the movie. You know, they just kind of sit there and even if they can sing the melody, it's kind of lifeless. But when one of their songs started, it sort of all breaks loose and there, there's a lot of movement and motion and, and whatnot. So it just speaks differently to it. Uh, from this understanding of contextualization, uh, there have been developments in recent years. Uh, this new professional field of ethnodoxology. Um, Harold Best mentioned last night ethnomusicology, which is a sacred uh, uh, academic discipline as well as one using, I mean, a, a secular academic discipline as well as one used in Christian circles, which is simply studying the various musical expressions of different cultures. Ethnodoxology was a, toy, a, current, uh, yeah, a term coined to refer in the Christian context to how the peoples of the world worship God. So ethnodoxology, like doxology and theology. Uh, the study of the worship of God among diverse cultures. So understanding that, appreciating that, valuing that, validating the different forms of expressions. Uh, there are actually people called, big long term, but ethnodoxologists. Those that are working in different, many different parts of the world uh, working with music and arts and, again, listening and learning and validating and helping people, new people groups, to develop their own kinds of expression. There's a group called the International Council of Ethnodoxologists. Uh, if you're interested, it's not a mission group. It's a loose fellowship of those doing arts-related, uh, worship-related ministries in many places. The website is worldofworship.org. Uh, and it links you to many different peoples and organizations and documents and writings and training opportunities and whatnot. So uh, uh, I point that out uh, just as a resource you might be interested in looking at. Uh, there's a course uh, that a team of us have put together called an Introduction to Ethnodoxology, which is just a survey of this, this whole field of, of global and multicultural worship. And we've actually taught it here uh, three times on this campus. Last summer was the last time. We've done it at Southeastern Baptist Seminary, at Washita Baptist, at Liberty University, uh, a, couple of, uh, a couple more, several more coming up uh, in the future. Again, just a survey, of course. I usually start out the first day with biblical foundations. Those are the unchanging truths we were talking about. And then we have different people that have been involved in different parts of the world and different cultures over the long term, like Africa and Siberia, talk about their experience of helping people uh, develop their own indigenous expressions of worship using their, uh, using their own arts. Uh, uh, two new books that just came out within the last uh, year or two. Uh, this is a huge, thick book. There's a hundred different authors writing on different aspects of of worship in the global church was uh, put out by ICE, the International Council of Ethnodoxologists, in cooperation with the U.S. Center for World Mission. And um, uh, so, again, there's, there's articles on biblical foundations, case studies, uh, different uh, aspects of that whole field. And then this is actually a workbook 
that's to serve cross-cultural workers to actually take into a group and it's a, like a seven-step process that works them through of how to learn and to indigenize and help Christian groups develop uh, local expressions, so creating local arts together. These, these are new things. These are available on Amazon.com and lots so of other places. The book is like for the, those receiving it, like those that are uh, in the new culture. Well, this, this handbook would, would guide those going in, and would there be things they, could sh they would share then. These are more for sort of practitioners coming in from the outside, yeah. So these, these are new resources that are local. Um, there have been some international uh, events, as I was mentioning last night, not just a conference like this here in the middle of the U.S., but lots of other things gone. These happen to be ones I've been involved with. Uh, an international summit on church music mi ministry in Latvia with uh, music ministers from uh, Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union coming together. Uh, there's one in Pakistan in two different locations, a national symposium on church music and worship. And then this global consultation on music and missions uh, has taken place three times, and the next one is next summer in Thailand. If you're interested in reading more, you can go to GCOM Home, so Global Consultation on Music and Missions, G-C-O-M-M, gcomhome.org. And registration's open if somebody's interested in that. Uh, there'll be a gathering. The one in Singapore had people from 35 countries, and uh, I think we'll have time. I'm going to show you a video uh, from that conference of, of many of the different expressions of worship. And uh, I spoke there on that one in Singapore and just tried to sort of give the big picture of how the creative arts can enrich and guide us in our work of missions, both evangelism and discipleship, for the ultimate purpose, as Piper puts it, mission leading to worship, ultimately for the glory of God, because it's all for him and his glory. So just kind of putting that together. So again, the importance of the arts uh, in just about any society. Uh, somebody said once that it's a, it's a delivery mechanism of the philosophy of a people working its way into society, finds expression. In other words, what's important, what matters to a people, to a society, to a culture, uh, will find expression in its arts. Uh, and, you know, in former days when there was more of a Christian mindset in our society or those of, it, those of us from North America, uh, you know, the art would express that, that kind of stuff, you know, of balance and, and beauty and whatnot. And now um, there's a little less of that kind of philosophy in society. And uh, now you have other gods um, poking their heads up, whether it's money and pleasure and entertainment. Uh, you find isolation, hopelessness, and despair. So you get artwork like that, you know, that, that expresses some of the, some of the, the desperation uh, that we find in our society. I found this slide, which kind of says it. Modern art, holding a mirror to society, one sculpture at a time. That's a pretty good mirror of modern society, don't you think? Or classical expressions in a more Christian mindset, and now you have uh, different uh, versions of that in our more modern context. So <laughs> things, things like that, <laughs> without the beauty and balance that we'd come to uh, appreciate in previous generations. That's kind of what Harold Best was talking about, uh, building on the past, on what's come before us. Uh, so the arts and Christian worship, as I mentioned, this new professional 
uh, field of ethnodoxology. And the key, as I mentioned several times already, is, is valuing and validating and then coming alongside of and facilitating people in developing their own local uh, arts and worship expressions. Um, I met a missionary at one conference that, um, I don't think I have a picture of that in this uh, PowerPoint. No. Um, nope. Um, he, he said in this African tribe he was working in, they had an instrument called a balaphone, which is like a xylophone with all the wooden bars hanging down and you clink them together or something. And he said their tribe was presently having a big debate about whether it was appropriate to use a balaphone in Christian worship. <laughs> so there's nothing new under the sun, those kinds of expressions. We've had that over, actually in the 11th century before the organ was brought into the church, Apparently, there was a big, big discussion about whether it was appropriate to use an organ in Christian worship because some people called it the devil's instrument. <laughs> you ever heard that before about guitars or drums or, or whatnot? So uh, uh, there have always been these kinds of debates. This event in Singapore, it will take about five minutes, but I think it's worth uh, showing you this because it gives you an example of, of the richness that can come. Thailand, a dance group. From the Philippines. Michael Card was the guest artist to that conference. Turkmenistan. From Thailand again. Those are not her real fingernails, by the way. <laughs> Philippines again. Bolivia.
Philippines again. Venezuela. This guy sang the announcements. He's singing the announcements here. Please be on time. <laughs> it's hilarious. Somewhere in Africa. India. Philippines again. Thailand. Jesus loves me in Chinese. So that's just an example of some of the things uh, going on around the world and some of the uh, expressions, you know, some of the beautiful variety of expressions. I uh, told the story about the Philippines. I want to mention this uh, group, which is an outgrowth of Operation Mobilization Heart Sounds International. Uh, they have a ministry of going into difficult access countries, like in Central Asia, they've been to Sudan, uh, Mongolia, and uh, going in and holding songwriting seminars, sometimes for the first time encouraging Christians to put the Psalms, scriptures, other texts uh, to music, uh, building a repertoire of their own songs, and then they take in recording equipment and make CD recordings of this and duplicate it. They leave the equipment behind so that those recordings can then be disseminated among the believers on those countries. In many of these places, it's the first Christian recordings they've ever had. Or maybe they access something over the internet. But in terms of being in their own language, their own kind of music, their own style. So uh, it's a tre tremendous ministry they've had. Uh, I want to show you this uh, video from Wycliffe because I think it's fascinating. Again, sometimes we think about music as just kind of an extracurricular activity or whatnot and uh, miss just how, how meaningful the arts are to a people and the expression of its heart and where they are and their philosophy and whatnot. 
And I want to show you this because it, it kind of unpacks one particular artistic expression uh, in Africa and uh, it gives you a sense, I think, I think it's amazing, it's more professionally done than the last video, uh, but it gives you an amazing view of what a sophisticated field this is. It isn't just going and singing their songs with them or, or something. But there's a lot of very specialized, even doctoral training that goes into being able to learn to evaluate. And uh, I'd hasten to add, uh, too, you go in and you, you have to help them evaluate because you don't want to pull everything from the culture in. Uh, same thing with our culture. You don't want to bring in every musical expression in our culture to bring them into the church. But what's m most important are the, uh, Harold Best was saying, you know, there's a, there's a neutrality and amorality to music that's neither good nor bad. It's just vibrating air. But it's the associations that particular musics or expressions or even instruments have. So in other, different contexts, if it's music related to ancestor worship or devil worship or something, uh, you wouldn't easily, within a couple generations, lose that connotation in people's hearts and minds. And you want to distract them by bringing that into Christian worship. So it's best to leave it out. So uh, these arts consultants come alongside and say, what can be fruitly, fruitfully brought in and what is better left out? So uh, I think this is a fascinating look at what is actually a pretty sophisticated field of study. Part of Wycliffe related to Wycliffe.
That's actually dance notation. That's a fascinating look. You know, we'd say, well, they're just doing a song and dance together. But you see all the levels of meaning and significance. You know, there's why they're doing this, the way they're doing it, when they're doing it, and, and with what instruments and whatnot. So it just shows what a sophisticated field it is and what a sophisticated thing artistic expressions are uh, in cultures. You know, and we could, we could do analysis of some of the things we kind of take for granted in our own cultures as well. Um, in the little bit of time we have left, let me show you two, uh, two tools that help us come at the, again, this differentiation between the unchangeable and the changeable, uh, between cultural issues and biblical absolutes. Uh, one is this uh, illustration I often use uh, in my teaching, and uh, based on a suspension bridge where where you have two towers that are kind of firmly sunk in the ground to give stability to the bridge, and that can represent for us uh, a biblical framework, which uh, what this conference is all about. You know, we don't go outside a biblical framework to be faithful. And, and, by, and there's, a, there's an article on, on my website um, that you can look at if you want to see this unpack, this whole illustration of the bridge and the meaning of each of these constituent parts. That's the website. WORR.org, uh, just direct you there. Um, but then within this biblical, this unchanging, steady biblical framework in a suspension bridge like this, you have a lot of the weight of the bridge being borne by a cable, a suspension cable, which is not firm because of changes of temperature and wind has to have built-in flexibility. And so in our illustration, that represents for us this cultural latitude we have because the New Testament doesn't get more explicit than it does about actual practices. So unchanging biblical standards, a framework in which we, within which we must operate, uh, but then a lot, of the culture, uh, a lot of cultural latitude. And by the way, when I go and teach in different countries, my, my disclaimer at the beginning is, I'm not, telling, I'm not here to tell you exactly how to do this in your culture. I'm not from your culture. What I can share with you are biblical principles, a biblical framework, a biblical foundation, which because it's biblical is transcultural. It transcends culture, but needs to be applied and deployed 
in various cultural settings in different ways. So the unchanged, and that's what I can go in and share cross-culturally without living there for 20 years. You know, missionaries that are there long-term might speak to this in a way that I can't. But here are just some examples of the biblical cultural uh, things. Uh, I think we would all, uh, there's nothing in the Bible, for instance, about candles or pews. Does that mean they're right or wrong? Well, some churches have them. Maybe yours do. Maybe they don't. I think we can make a good case from the New Testament that we should have a sermon. Does it say anywhere how long the sermon should be? No. In Eastern Europe, the Baptist churches have two-hour services and have three little sermons. (laughs) And uh, we're used to maybe 30, maybe 25, maybe 40 or whatnot. But there are decisions we make in our context of what what the leadership of our church feels is best for our particular context. Uh, To have a sermon, but how it's done. Lord's Supper, same thing. We must remember Christ's death and the Lord's Supper. It doesn't really say uh, how often or how it should be done. Some churches pass trays around to their people. Some people come forward to the tables. There's no one right way that the New Testament gives us. The New Testament just says, remember me as you eat and you drink. So how we do it may vary. Prayer, again, different positions, different postures for prayer, kneeling, seated, saw a study once that said the most common uh, posture for prayer in the Old Testament is actually flat on the ground. Uh, we don't do that too many. And uh, so there are different ways that churches do that. Uh, the use of music, the instruments you use, the styles and whatnot. Again, it's not spelled out in the New Testament. So let us beware to think we've arrived at it. We know the heart of God. And therefore, we need to impose this not only on our church, but other churches in order for it to be the right way. That's... That's at the root of so many of our worship problems, people thinking that they've discovered what honors God and therefore what does not honor God uh, based really on cultural, their own cultural background and considerations rather than clear revelation of God's word. Does that make sense? See the difference? That is so, so important. Uh, very quickly then, we're out of time, though we do have a 30-minute break. I'm, not, I'm sorry there wasn't more time for questions. If you'd like to hang around, I can certainly do that because it's a half hour before the next thing starts. But let me give you this statement. And again, you can find this link to on my website. Uh, It's the World Lutheran Federation actually put together this thing called the Nairobi Statement of how worship and culture interrelate and uh, interact. And it's a fascinating statement. Uh, It says, as you see here, that there are at least four different ways that worship relates to cultures. The first is that worship must be transcultural. That's what we talked about before. Unchanging truth. Certain aspects, certain foundational practices and understandings and principles of worship that do not change, that are the same everywhere. Transcultural. But secondly, it should breathe the air, or as we heard in the illustration earlier this morning, it should swim in the water of the culture in which it finds itself. It must be contextual. It should vary. Uh, according to the heart language, the heart music, uh, the heart artistic expressions of the people on which it's taking place. So it's at the same time transcultural, but also contextual. Third, also though countercultural. That's what I said about we need to carefully discern what the associations are. It doesn't mean anything goes from our culture, bringing it into worship. But we need to look at it carefully and things that are contrary to the gospel or dishonoring to God we should best leave out. And fourthly, 
cross-cultural. And again, in our day with uh, modern communication and globalization, we have exposure to other people's expressions of worship as we've never had before. And uh, we should look for ways to, to honor and validate uh, perhaps the immigrant communities in our own particular context by drawing in some of their artistic expressions or perhaps mission fields where our churches are active, uh, borrowing some of them, their stuff. Uh, we, do, we don't do a lot of that, but we're, tr we're trying to do some things in Spanish, a few things and whatnot. It will vary from church to church, okay? But you might want to step, uh, stick your toe in the water. The back article I wrote in this worship leader thing was, uh, you know, st starting small, taking baby steps uh, in things like that to, to appreciate, to remind us that, the, as the brother was saying, there's a wide world out there. It's not just our little niche and to, uh, and to represent some of that in our worship practices. By the way, obviously, missions conference is the best place to start because you can get away with anything during missions conference. You know, they kind of expect it there, and you can take a baby step there uh, and then maybe work it into other things. So those, that, uh, that and the bridge illustration are, uh, are two tools that can be used. So again, this whole field of ethnodoxology, again, these two documents kind of unpack some of that as well as those two bigger volumes I was talking about. You're welcome to take those. Um, Again, it's, it's a study, but the key, like we said, is value, valuing, validating, and facilitating local arts and worship expressions. And that, I heard a, a brother once give a thing about uh, the modern worship wars as it relates to ethnomusicology. And, and it relates in our own churches as well, because what we have in our generational thing are really cultural differences. The generations having grown up in different worlds, and so we need to learn to value and validate and, and sometimes facilitate those expressions, the young, as we've heard today, looking to, learning from those that have gone before, those that have walked with the Lord for decades, and the old people gradually learning to, to uh, appreciate the new expressions um, that young people bring as well. Because both sides tend to be narrow-minded and not want the others. So that's a, that's a divide that needs to be crossed. And you find that everywhere in the world, too, that generational issue. So I encourage you to, to look for ways to to bridge that uh, as well. Uh, any questions? We do have the half hour break. So if you need to go to that, fine. But if there are questions we can answer right now, I'm happy to as well. Yes? Uh, how, how can you comment maybe on uh, it seems in some ways also that uh, the world is getting smaller and um, to where you are starting to see with maybe the younger generation similarities as far as uh, as far as music and style going cross cultures and where you know you are having Spanish yeah. groups from from Hispanic speaking nations writing their own worship music and mm -hmm. it's almost like oh that's coming towards you know yeah. a Hillsong song or something like that with, yeah. with, with, with style. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because whether we like it or not, it's a fact of our present day world because of globalization and whatnot that Western-style contemporary worship music is being listened to by young people all over the world. And uh, what I'm saying is not, you don't, you don't trash that. Uh, it's not cultural imperialism. It's just what they're listening to. Uh, so that, that is now part of young people's heart music all over the world. So you don't want to deny that, but you also don't want to lose those tradi traditional expressions from those cultures as well. So it's a, it's a both and, not an either or. So Paul says, 
that we sing to the Lord with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, which whatever that means, it means use different things. And so, uh, so we need to encourage that and just realize that that's a reality of our present day world as well, that that music is being shared elsewhere. At the other, on the other side, I don't know if anyone's here from Hillsong, there, you know, Hillsong has started planning churches in other cultures and just translating their style, which is, has a little bit of an African queen air to it. And uh, I know of one woman from the Hillsong tradition who's studying at Fuller now and you know, doing a doctorate in, in worship or global worship or something who, who told me she was, she's beginning to question that idea of just transplanting the style because of what she's learning in terms of that global diversity and not just... Uh, uh, I knew a friend once who went to Croatia to do a songwriting seminar, and he said, well, a Christian song normally has, has uh, two verses with refrain and then a bridge, and then you repeat the refrain. And I'm thinking, well, that's not the only form that a Christian song can okay? There's nothing wrong with that form. It's a common form. But to say that is how you write a Christian song, that's the kind of thing we need to be careful of. That's the kind of cultural imperialism or whatever we want to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah, Ryan? Do you think that, that, that by, not, by failing to go into these areas and look at, go into the culture and try and help them develop those things, we can sort of put ourselves, set ourselves back? Because if, if they look at Christian music coming in as part of Western culture, mm-hmm. it's something that's sort of rolling over. I mean, already, Western culture is... Yeah. Right, rolling over everything, yeah. And it's viewed, not outside of Christian context, it's viewed negatively in a lot of areas due to that fact, the mm-hmm. fear of other cultures coming in and taking over. Right. Do, do we risk, if we don't go in specifically, intentionally to these areas, do we really risk um, falling into that trap and really isolating the yeah. potential population? Yeah, I think so, and that's not the only reason to go in and listen to learn. It's just that their expressions are worth listening to and learning from, uh, but that's certainly part of it. Uh, as well, and especially with the older generations, if they're like in, in Eastern Europe where they were under communism and, and you have a conservatism among the older people that you don't find among the young people who never knew communism because it's been 20, 24 years now since it fell, so the divide is even greater sometimes in that context. Anybody else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's some great examples in this country of, of churches that are really doing that. And Chuck Stedham is here from John Piper from Bethlehem Baptist, and they, they committed to stay in the inner city, and they really got very multicultural in their worship expression to, again, to honor the constituent groups that were already there in their church, not just to detract them, but to honor the ones that were already there. So we get out of our little, our little box. Yeah, well, like the, like these arts consultants, uh, and if you look at that, the worldofworship.org website, there there are people that are doing worship training. I've I've had opportunities in in uh, 32 countries to teach on worship, but again, not saying this is how you do worship, but here's what needs to underlie your worship. So I'm a, I'm a little bit. Every now and then you'll hear of a worship leader that come goes to do his thing and teach his thing in a, another culture, and I, I think. That's, again, where you need to be careful that you're not just transplanting the whole package 
and saying this is how you do worship. There are certainly things they can contribute and that can be learned from uh, and whatnot. So there's a possibility. But, um, but more important, I think, is, is this teaching, the common, again, the, the unchangeable, the non-negotiables that should not change across cultures. And then, uh, like Wycliffe and others have done, sending specialists to help them develop what that's going to look like uh, in their own particular cultural situation. Anything else? Okay, well, thanks so much.